Welcome everyone to the ICEJ's weekly webinar. I'm David Parsons, uh, Vice President and Senior Spokesman, coming to you from the uh, headquarters of the International Christian Embassy here in Jerusalem. We have a very uh, fascinating, informative guest for today's uh, webinar and, a, and a, a good topic to sink our teeth into over the last couple of weeks of the webinar. Of course, we turned our attention to the conflict in Ukraine and especially the need to bring out uh, uh, Ukrainian Jews and bring them to Israel and Aliyah and also dealt with some prophetic uh, thoughts, biblical thoughts on what's happening there. But today we're gonna focus on the impact of this conflict, uh, this war that Russia started against Ukraine, the impact and consequences for Israel and, and even the Middle East. And our guest is Brigadier General Reserve Amir Avivi. Thank you for joining us, Amir. You have to- Thank you for having me today. Yes. It's great to have you. I'll do a quick rundown of uh, his credentials here. Uh, uh, General Vivi has spent 30 years in the Israeli military, uh, ending up in some very senior positions on the, uh, the chief of staff's uh, uh, staff. And uh, just two years ago, February of 2020, about the start of Corona, he founded uh, a, a new organization called uh, Habit on Nistim in Hebrew. ISF in, in English, simpler. Yeah, it's the IDSF, the Israel Defense and Security Forum. And he's the CEO and founder of this that they have over in just two years, they've uh, managed to recruit over 3,000 uh, reserve uh, officers, other uh, IDF veterans, Mossad, the Shin Bet, Israeli police, different people who worked in uh, various facets of Israeli security to form a, a movement uh, um, that is nonpartisan uh, to, to help uh, steer the conversation here about Israel's security needs. And uh, they um, have, have made a big splash in Israel. I'll tell you, over the last two years, uh, General Vivi is showing up everywhere on Israeli television, in the papers, also in the foreign media and the press, and uh, and really uh, is is helping uh, contribute. And I, I guess you're trying to find a, a consensus, which you're security minded, so you might be a little right of center, but trying to find a consensus of what are Israel's security needs and how should we meet them. And uh, we want you to to address um, you know, the, the whole impact of this conflict in Ukraine on Israel and the region, if you want to start out with some, some comments. Yes, definitely. So just to uh, tell you two, two, two things about myself, I, I was born in Jerusalem. I come from a family that has been living in Jerusalem 15 generations. And um, I spent most of my young life uh, outside of Israel. My father was a prominent diplomat. So I got to live uh, a few years in Italy. Uh, I, left the, I, li I lived in the Ivory Coast, in Chile and Argentina. Uh, I see uh, there are some Argentinians here. So I, I arrived as a child to Argentina in 78, directly to the finals of the Mundial, when Argentina won for the first time. So that's why you speak so many languages. Yes, that's why. Not because I'm that intelligent. I had to learn <laughs> if I wanted to survive, you know, everyday life. Um, I went back to Italy at the age of 16 and I graduated from a British high school uh, where I even got to be house captain uh, before I went back uh, to Israel to join the army. And I served there uh, 30 years. And uh, Israel's national security was always something that was very close to me. And I felt the need to build an organization that will deal with one big question what is needed to ensure the existence and the prosperity of the state of Israel and the Jewish people for generations to come? It should have been an obvious question, considering the fact that we are a nation that was expelled twice from its land and spent 2,000 years in exile. Uh, but for some reason, it seems that uh, after a very short time of the existence of the state of Israel, 
people tend to take our existence here for granted. And there is no um, other organization, not even the government or the army that asks this long-term question. What are the parameters? What, what, what's, what is needed to make sure that we exist? Uh, there is a tendency today to first think about um, uh, uh, peace uh, processes, ideas, and then try to squeeze security into that. We, we are, we think that we need to make sure, first of all, that we exist and thrive, and then see what, what kind of solutions might, uh, might be relevant. And we have, by the way, many ideas, and uh, you can find them also in our website. Um, but first and foremost, we deal about with national security. And um, I think one of the most basic no notions we have talking about national security that I think you will all relate to is that there is no national security without nationalism, without patriotism, without a deep, deep connection to our roots. If you are not connected to your roots, if you are not connected to your land, if you don't know your history and heritage and religion, uh, you won't have the spirit needed to fight for your country in the long term. Without spirit, no tank and no technology and no plane can help. So when we deal today with uh, the education of the young generation in Israel, when we deal with uh, uh, talking in the media and social media in order to reach big audiences, uh, we, we, we make sure that people understand how important these are Jewish Zionist values as the base from which you can build national uh, national security. And then we talk about national security needs. Uh, we also have a, quite a large uh, a group of, of researchers. Uh, we write position papers. We meet a lot with decision makers uh, from all over the world. And of course, also the government uh, in Israel. Um, and uh, I think that the uniqueness of this huge group of thousands of uh, officers and commanders is that uh, we bring a lot of experience from many years of service and we are the young generation. I mean, I, I'm the young generation of uh, retired generals. Uh, there is a generation of people who are 72, five, uh, maybe more that um, were active in uh, the Yom Kippur War. Many things have changed things. And we're the young, young generation that had to deal with the decision, decisions made during Oslo and so on. And we encountered a completely different reality. And uh, the way we think is much more, I would say, tends to be patriotic, Zionistic, more connected to the land and to, to, to our heritage and history. And so this is us. And, um, I think there is a lot to learn about uh, the issue of Russia and Ukraine. And, and I think that the first thing that uh, probably, if there is one reason why the Western world is so angry about this invasion, I, I would say carefully that it's not because everybody cares so much about Ukraine. It's something else. I think it's because uh, in the last uh, few decades, there was a notion that technology, internet, and so on, basically change uh, human nature. That this is a whole new world, um, kind of a redemption by, te by technology. And in this world, there is no wars because they, it's all about uh, commerce, economics, uh, relations, uh, tourism, and, uh, and so on. And um, I think that uh, this war is, is shocking to people who think like, I would say John Lennon maybe, imagine, you know? Uh, imagine that, you know, actually Instagram didn't change human nature. This is what we found out in this war. Um, I think that there is two kinds of messianic thinking. One is religious and it's more connected to the ground in the sense that when you think about uh, the Messiah and so on, you understand that this world is really problematic 
and it will only change when the Messiah will come. But in, in people who think in a technological way of messianism, they think it already changed and they behave as if it is already changed. And this is why, in a way, you see this huge gap between how the West is dealing with what's happening in Ukraine and how Russia is dealing with it. And, and, and it's like two sides that completely cannot talk to each other and cannot understand each other. And Russia has very cold interests, much as the world has been behaving for thousands of years. And the West is bringing some very high values, but not really connected to, to what's going on on the ground. And this creates, and the, and the price is paid by Ukraine. Now, what can we learn? First of all, that uh, human nature hasn't changed, surprisingly enough. Still the same human nature, a desire for power, for influence, uh, um, countries that have the issue of um, honor and the uh, aspirations of being a strong nation. This is what we see in Russia. And uh, this is one thing. The other thing is what happens to a country when it gives up its most important uh, assets and relies on the international community. Uh, Ukraine until 94 had nuclear capabilities. The world, the US, Britain, so on, Russia said to Ukraine, listen, give up these uh, capabilities and we'll guarantee that you will not be attacked. They gave us this basic asset and look what is happening now. Ukraine is being attacked and nobody is defending them. With all due respects, with all the meetings and talkings and, and even um, economical sanctions, this is not fighting for Ukraine. Nobody is fighting for them. And Russia is destroying whole areas of uh, Ukraine completely, bringing down whole cities and nobody is doing anything. Now we are asked the same. The world comes to Israel and say, give up your most important assets, the Jordan Valley, the Bible Belt, Judea and Samaria. Don't worry, we'll take care of you. Well, we, we think that, first of all, the only country that needs to defend Israel is Israel. We need to be able to defend ourselves by ourselves. We, we cannot rely on anybody else. And if we give up our most important assets, which are spiritual assets, religious assets, also land, um, there is very few chance that we can uh, survive in the long term. And this is why uh, we as a, as a big organization of officers were very, very in favor of applying sovereignty in the Jordan Valley and in the Jewish towns, in the Bible Belt. Uh, we think that this is a crucial, essential area uh, that Israel will need forever. So, you know, from a somewhat spiritual um, point of view, um, in the Kabbalah, it says that um, anything big that happened in the world is for the Jews. That's to do with us, okay? Uh, in a way, also anti-Semites say that uh, everything has to do with Jews. Um, so how is really Ukraine affecting this uh, notion? It's interesting, first of all, although this war is devastating and it's hard for Ukrainians, uh, Israel is getting now a huge wave of uh, Jewish migration. For us, it's, you know, it's good news. We're getting migrants from Russia, we're, we're getting migrants from, from Ukraine. Uh, we're expecting hundreds of thousands of Jews to, to come in the next uh, coming years and certainly many in the next coming months. This is a huge blessing for the state of Israel. Israel was established as the home of the Jewish people and, and the, the importance of getting as many Jews into the land, it, it, it's a strategic issue for us and maybe also a spiritual issue. Um, so this is one thing that is affecting Israel uh, in a good way. The other thing is, that um, the, we can say that Europe and NATO were shocked 
when they saw this huge Russian army marching into Ukraine. And of course, uh, they feel that they need now military capabilities, which we don't have much now, just to understand Germany, this huge country has 50 tanks in service. Britain, 150. Russia is with 12,000 tanks on, in Ukraine. So this shock, this wave of shock is creating a reality where all these countries are coming now to Israel and saying, we need help. Assist us, we, we, we need the guidance, we need the capabilities and so on. All of Israeli industries, military industries are now in Europe. If you might recall until not long ago, we had a crisis with Poland uh, regarding the remarks about uh, the Holocaust and so on. Uh, there was a huge crisis and that's it. There is no crisis. Why? Because they need us. Uh, we had many problems with the, um, the northern countries like Sweden and that not, were not very favorable of Israel. Now they're signing huge agreements with Israel uh, in order to improve their, their military and this creates a, a reality where Israel is becoming more important in Europe. And there is another issue and it's the issue of energy. So you probably know um, Europe is very dependent on Russia. 40% of the gas that uh, Europe uh, consumes comes from Russia. Europe wants to try to diminish this dependency now because of the sanctions, that's what's going on. They need alternative solutions. And Israel, and it's almost a miracle in this sense, have become an exporter of gas. Who would have thought about that a decade or two ago? So now they're reaching Israel and asking for gas for, for export. And this, of course, will be very beneficial. This also explains some of the reason why Turkey is getting uh, closer to Israel. Uh, they would like the pipe of gas to go from the Israeli sea to Turkey and from Turkey to Europe. They understand that in order to get closer to the US, they need good relations uh, with Israel. Um, so th this is the beneficial part of what's going on. Um, there is also challenges. One of the challenges is Okay, what's the Israel's position about what's going on? Uh, obviously, you know, we very much sympathize with Ukraine uh, and we, we truly believe that international borders should be respected and no country should invade to another country. And we are sending help and the, and the civilian hospitals and so on. But at the same time, we have to remember we have the Russians on our northern border. For us, being able to coordinate with Russia our operations in Syria and even in, to a certain extent in Iran is crucial. It's a matter of Israel's national security. We cannot get into a fight with Russia. And therefore, Israel is being very, very careful uh, how it's handling itself. We are showing our sympathy to Ukraine, but we also um, don't push it too far and uh, we don't want to affect our relationship with the Russians uh, because it will affect our national security seriously. Uh, and we don't want to do that. Uh, so yes, this is reality. It's, it's a complicated uh, reality and um, we need to deal. Uh, the way the Israeli society is looking at Ukraine is, uh, depends. Many sympathize Ukraine and many says, say, listen, in Ukraine, more than a million Jews were massacred. Hundreds of thousands of Jews uh, were killed in pogroms by Ukrainians. In the Holocaust, the Ukrainians uh, worked with the Germans and killed huge amount of Jews. So we couldn't accuse some of our society for being indifferent uh, to a certain extent about uh, Ukraine's future. And we have a lot in the society who do hurt the situation and, and, and think otherwise. But again, I think for Israelis and Jews, this is a complex issue from all sides. We also have to remember that 
In Israel, we have at least a million Jews that are Russian. And naturally, they support Russia. So it's very, very complex to, to try to understand so many ways that Israelis are looking uh, at this issue. But as we are dealing, as we are dealing with the, the Ukrainian the Russian issue, we have to remember that the biggest issue that we are facing is Iran. Iran has been building a huge, huge force around us. They are aspired to, to reach a point where they have between 250,000 to 300,000 rockets and missiles and UAVs pointed at Israel and ready to be shot. Um, and also, of course, they aspire to nuclear weapon that will be an umbrella for all of this uh, operation. And um, the, the, the decision of the US and Europe to go along with the Iranians and sign an agreement that basically gives the Iranians within a few years uh, the capability uh, uh, to have nuclear weapons, it's devastating for Israel and for the region. Also, if they sign this agreement, immediately it will mean that sanctions will be relieved from the Iranians. They will get something like $100 billion. They will use this money uh, to exponentially grow all these uh, menaces against Israel, the rockets, the missiles, and so on. And it looks like the Western world is pushing this region into war because this is what's going to happen. I mean, if Iran gets all this money and the world says we for, as far as we are concerned you can be a nuclear power um, this will be bad news and it makes us feel that we are alone at the end of the day we are alone we have to take care of our own future we have to get our military and air force and so on ready uh, to attack by ourselves uh, the Iranian uh, nuclear program. Um, and this uh, creates a reality where this is, this is going to be very challenging, very challenging uh, the next coming years. Um, and um, as you know, we also have challenges inside as well. A whole campaign of uh, Arabs and uh, Palestinians uh, were trying to undermine Zionism and our identity as a Jewish state. Uh, so on one side, you look at everyday life in Israel and you see a blossoming economy and technology and, and really things are moving forward in an amazing way in many ways. Uh, on the other side, you see this huge, huge uh, threats uh, around us. And, uh, you know, I'm saying again, from a spiritual point of view, maybe this is a good sign, you know, every time the Jews had redemption, it was, before that, there was a huge menace of extinction. It happened in Egypt with Pharaoh. It happened again, we just mentioned that now in Purim, in Persia just before we came back to the land of Israel to build a, a second temple where we were almost exterminated in Iran. And it happened again in the Holocaust, moments before our redemption and building of the state of Israel, we had the Holocaust. And it feels to me like we are again in this uh, scenario where a huge, huge forces build a around us and inside us where, where the world is indifferent and even assist this evil uh, to grow uh, against us. Um, but uh, I'm optimistic. I know what are our strengths and I know what they were able to do. And uh, I believe that um, in the right moment, um, big, uh, big things will happen here in Israel and will prevail at the end of the day. But uh, my organization um, cannot just uh, rely on uh, God. We need to prepare the society. We need to prepare decision makers. We need to 
uh, prepare um, the general uh, public, the young generation, uh, for the challenges that uh, lie ahead. And this is what we are doing every day, whether it's in education programs, whether it's in the media and social media, whether it's uh, meetings with uh, diplo diplomats, decision makers, and so on. Um, we are going to present to the Prime Minister in a few weeks a very elaborate um, paper uh, giving a strategic assessment of what we think is going uh, to happen in the next two years, how uh, the Russia and Ukraine is, is affecting the region, Iran, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and so on. Uh, of course, you all see that uh, we are not the only ones that worry. The whole Sunni world is worried. This is why Israeli chief of staff met uh, weeks ago, uh, flew to Bahrain and met also with the Qatari chief of staff and why our prime minister now is in Egypt and talking to Saudi Arabia and so on. The whole region is very worried about the Iranian issue and where this is going. And uh, all of us are preparing for what's to come. So having said that, I would be happy to open it to questions, uh, David, and please. Thank you, uh, General Avivi. Very uh, interesting, informative remarks. And uh, a lot of issues that you brought up. We only got a little time, and I got a thousand questions myself for you. But you, you brought up the, this thing of uh, how, through the internet and whatever, we thought the world had changed and we were headed for peace and all. But I, I uh, um, watched an um, interview on YouTube with Julia Ioff. She's one of the best. Uh, experts in the US on, on Russia. It was one of that dying breed of criminologists who's still around and proving very helpful now. But she says that Russia never really, some of the elite and educated discovered it, but still 90% of the Russian public get total news from the Russian state television. And uh, even, even uh, Vladimir Putin does not use a computer at all and his inner circle they don't even use computers if you put up an open letter on the internet to vladimir putin he's never going to read it because he's never he's never logged on to a computer he doesn't he doesn't use email it's quite fascinating to hear her talk about russian culture whereas ukraine seems to have opened up to that to democratic freedoms and whatever and i think this is part of what they want to stifle there. Um, I, uh, um, you see what's happening to um, some of these cities in Ukraine, and it looks like Aleppo 2.0. Uh, do you believe uh, that, that uh, with Russian backing, Iran dreams of doing the same thing to Israeli cities? How serious a threat is that with the 250,000 rockets uh, and missiles in Lebanon alone? Well, I think first of all, let's talk about the Russians. The, the Russians, um, we don't know the exact plans, but nobody saw them. They didn't leak to the internet for some reason that you said before. Uh, but we do understand one thing for sure. They want the Donbass area. They want to connect Donbass to Crimea. And in order to yes. do that, they need to conquer Mariupol. They want control of the Black Sea. And in order to control the Black Sea, they need also to conquer Odessa, which is the major port that all of the Central and Northern Europe um, trade goes through Odessa to the Black mm -hmm. Sea and from there to yes. through the Bosporus and the Dardanelles to uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So in places where the Russians for sure want to stay, they will do ethnic cleansing. They will throw all of the Ukrainians from this area. They will leave only supporters who are Russian. They will bring Russian people um, to reside in these areas. And uh, then, you know, they will even hold democratic elections and all the Russians will say that they want to be part of Russia and that's it. So you think they're being uh, humane, opening up these corridors, humanitarian corridors, but they're really letting the people go never to come back again. No, for sure they're doing that. 
Yeah, it's a strategy, and we get fooled yeah, yeah. thinking they're, they're they're showing some mercy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, they want all of the societies that is not with Russians to live in the areas that they want to stay now what we don't know for sure is do they want to concentrate just on this area or they also really want to conquer kiev and go north and south along the Dnieper river mm -hmm. and and annex all of uh, eastern ukraine it's not clear maybe they are pressuring kiev not because they really want to conquer Kiev, but because they want the concessions. They want uh, Zelensky to say, okay, withdraw, we are giving up the Donbass and Crimea and so on. From now on, it's Russia, okay? So when you want something, you have to be able to demand more and then retreat a bit in the negotiation. Uh, but maybe they want everything, at least all of Eastern Ukraine, it's not clear. Iran wants to wipe Israel from the face of the earth. They say it again and again, they mean it. They are willing to sacrifice their whole economy to build this huge force uh, to fight Israel. They want, when they will feel ready, they will operate, they will attack Israel. And, and in this sense, we cannot just sit and wait until this happens, we need to be proactive. And this is part of what we're talking as an organization to the government. What can we do to get more ready? What can we do to be proactive and not wait for them to take the initiative? Uh, because today, because you are talking about rockets and missiles that are already pointed towards Israel, it's just a decision. In a, in a mini decision, you can shoot tens of thousands of rockets. You, don't even, you won't even be alerted. It will happen fast. And so if you want to be ready, you need to, to be proactive and, and see what you can do about it. And it's a challenge. It's a huge, huge challenge. Um, Israel, of course, is trying to bring the best of the technology in, in our minds to find the solutions. The prime minister has, had talked in the last months about the laser program that is being developed. It's, it's an amazing program, but it will take years. It will take a few years to really uh, create a reality where you have a lot of laser weapons around Israel that can deal with many of these uh, challenges. Until then, uh, we'll have to deal in other ways. Um, and I, I think that what uh, Russia is doing uh, in Ukraine, in a way, is what the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria and the Bedouins in the Negev are trying to do in a different way, but the same idea to bring more and more people, to grab more and more land, to create a reality where they control whole areas. You might relate to what's going on in the Negev, like a kind of Donbass. They are mm. building an autonomy. And if you don't change that, if you don't stop it, if they connect all the way to the southern part of Hebron, this might be a big problem for us. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems there's something really hanging in the balance. The Ukrainian army is using some Soviet-era weapons, but also some you know, more advanced Western weapons now, and they're performing well against the mighty Russian army. And if you, notched, if you knock Russia down a bit, uh, the, the quality of its military equipment, of its fighting force, doesn't that weaken uh, the, um, Iran or say Syria? Do you think Syria might decide Assad to go to some other patron? Because he, he did go to the United Arab Emirates the other day. I don't think he's going to change patterns so fast. He's completely dependent on the Russians. And the Russians, you know, have proven themselves as a very reliable ally. I mean, yes. look, at, uh, look at, for example, the way uh, you, you had in Egypt, for example, um, for many, many years, uh, the former president um, of Egypt was in very good relations with uh, the US. Mubarak, and the moment there was a rebellion, the first thing the, U the U.S. did 
is support the rebellion against their allies. Yeah. So when you look at it from our Arab point of view, they look at it and say, this, this Americans, you cannot trust them. In a moment, they, you know, they stab you in the back and support somebody else. Putin is not like that. He says to, he says to the Arab leaders, whatever happens, you can rely on me. I will support you. And, and he's doing that. He's supporting. I mean, we might really be disgusted by the fact that he's supporting a, a murderer like Assad. Uh, but if an uh, Arab leader wants to be alive and wants to be in government for a long time, he might seriously consider allying himself with the Russians. It seems uh, that he's got a better chance to live than uh, relying on the West. Um, look, we were all surprised um, a couple of Shabbats ago when all of a sudden Prime Minister Naftali Bennett uh, news broke that he was in Moscow in the Kremlin meeting face to face with Putin. And he, he's uh, to date, since the war started, he's the only Western d democratic leader who has, has had a face to face talk with uh, with Putin, uh, Macron and some others have been on the phone with him a lot, but uh, you know that that carried a lot of risk. How how uh, surprised were you by that? I know Zelensky was promoting uh, him as a as a mediator. How surprised and what were the risks involved? Yeah, so I'm not a political interpreter, but I think that politically speaking. For Bennett, it was good because he became a player in the field of the big, uh, you know, uh, big guys. So in a way, he showed that he can do things that uh, people here thought only Netanyahu can do. Um, on the other side, I think that uh, this attempt has some risks. First of all, Israel cannot really be a mediator between Russia and Ukraine. We have, as I said, interest with the Russians. We are not really a mediator that can see in a balanced way both sides. And we have, we have nothing to offer, mm -hmm. offer to mediate uh, between a nation like Russia and a big nation like Ukraine. Um, my problem with this is that if the prime minister has time to deal with that, What's the message we are sending about Iran? I, I would expect mm -hmm. the Israeli government, all of it, morning, noon, evening, night, to deal with one thing and one thing only, Iran. Um, and the, the fact that the government is dealing with other issues, this sends a message to mm -hmm. the US administration and to Europe that maybe, you know, the Iranian issue is not that uh, terrible. And it is, it is terrible. It's an existential threat. And I would expect a completely different approach from the government uh, to this issue. Yeah, I know a lot of the media reports on that meeting did say he was uh, addressing the whole Iran issue. And it, around that time, it came out that uh, Russia was trying to um, change the deal last minute. They were about to sign, a, the Western powers about to sign a deal with Iran, and Russia started adding some conditions, some things it wanted for its own self, and it got exposed that really the U.S. and, and Europe had been negotiating with Russia, not, not Iran all this time. But right now, there's this huge temptation uh, to, now that Russian oil and gas is being sanctioned, to, when you look around for replacement sources, one of them would be Iranian oil, and 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 uh, it's there, but it's been sanctioned too. And and you know the U.S. It seems they're talking about going to Iran to open up the spigot, start taking their oil as part of this this deal, sort of a side part of an Iranian uh, nuclear deal. And it's very scary. Even talk of of taking the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps off of the, the terror sponsor list. Yeah, so first of all, um, we'll, we'll have to follow and see if these uh, Russian conditions really stay in the long term and whether this reality where Russia is sanctioned is really created a new reality where lifting sanctions from Iran will hurt Russia. 
it's not completely clear at the moment. It might be the case. And maybe this is why Russia uh, is holding uh, at the moment and not uh, enabling to sign the agreement. But I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. It's something that we, we need to see what happens with that. At the moment, I'm happy that the Russians are stalling and, and maybe indeed there is a change. Uh, looking at the willingness of the Biden administration to lift sanctions from the most murderous terrorists in the Middle East, it's inconceivable. Like I, you know, I usually think of myself as a person that when he sees things happening on the international arena, usually I can understand what are the interests behind it. I cannot agree or not agree, but I can understand the interest. Like I explained Russian interest before. What the U.S. is doing, I cannot understand. Cannot understand because what the U.S. is doing is undermining U.S. security. It's undermining its allies. It's undermining the Middle East and the, it's undermining the, the globe because Iran nuclear is a menace to all of the world. It is going to destabilize all the world. And Iran will never go with the U.S. Iran will ally itself with the Chinese and with Russia against the US. So this uh, policy is terrible. And, and the only good explanation, and I asked a lot of time, many people, what they think about this policy, was um, wanting to keep uh, Obama's legacy. Obama started this process, and in this administration, you have many people who owe Obama a lot and were part of Obama's administration. And the, the, the political need to prove uh, the former administration as wrong and to stick to this uh, uh, JCPOA agreement, which is completely irrelevant now, uh, it seems uh, the political uh, need is, is, is overcomes a, a, any common sense and any logic uh, you would expect uh, from the U.S. administration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm very concerned uh, as an American myself about uh, our government uh, want to uh, revive this this bad deal, and um, you know when you see the the carnage and mayhem that, you know, here Russia, this uh, great power, uh, what they, you know, all the mischief and, and, and the destruction that they're causing under the umbrella of a nuclear threat, because they've got nukes, the West is afraid to get in there and fight. Well, what if Iran gets nukes? Then the, the missiles in, in Lebanon and Gaza and all were put there, were given to these uh, proxy militias to create a deterrent and use them once in a while, create a deterrent so that Israel won't attack the nuclear program in Iran. But once they have nukes, Israel's a one-bob country and they can fire all these conventional rockets all day long because they have a, a, a credible threat of it. That, that's a yeah, you see it very clearly with North Korea. Yes. It's almost ridiculous country with nothing, with no economy, but they have nuclear weapons and see what's going on. Nobody yeah. can do with them. Yeah. Yes. Um, I got a couple more questions, and we have some others that are coming in. I, I'm a little concerned. Uh, you know, I I think that uh, there have been some serious war crimes, as they're now defined under international law, committed by Russian forces, and it seems to be a an established policy of just bombing civilians into submission as as a strategy of ethnic cleansing, and uh, that. Um, but I'm also concerned. The more times you drag people in and are accusing people of war crimes, that all those uh, BDS agitators, those anti-Israel activists out there, they're just going to say, well, now it's time to also drag Israel. Do you think there's a, a backlash Israel should be worried about that they're going to get even more active in dragging uh, uh, Israel to the uh, International Criminal Court in The Hague? Well, there is a whole campaign uh, by the BDS and the Palestinians trying to make a connection between Ukraine and, pa and yes. Palestinians. 
Yeah. Of course, this connection is ludicrous, and I would say right. it's even the other way around. You can connect to Ukraine and Israel, not connect any yeah. Ukrainian Palestinians. Um, but they're surely trying to do this connection, and um, we'll, we'll have to see in the future whether it works or not. We don't know. It's hard to say. Um, at the moment, it doesn't seem to really have a big impact, but uh, it's hard to say how it will uh, will, will, will be evol will evolve, you know, in the future. Okay, uh, I'll, I have one more question. Um, uh, Israel, the Israeli government is trying to, uh, you know, walk a tightrope here. Uh, maintain some sort of uh, relation with Russia because of all the damage it could do here, but also giving uh, once in a while voting uh, uh, for condemnation of Russia at the UN, sending uh, a medical hospital, other aid, humanitarian aid, but no weapons. What would you do different to help the Ukrainians or, or even, you know, what would you do different than what the government has done? Would you give them the Iron Dome system? No. I think that the government of Israel is doing exactly uh, what sure. it can and should do. I think that we definitely need to help um, in any civilian way we can. I think that uh, Ukraine is getting enough weapons uh, from NATO and from uh, the US. They don't need Israeli weapons and we cannot really give them. Uh, as I said, we cannot have Israeli weapons shooting Russians. And mm -hmm. uh, it might uh, result with uh, the Russians uh, um, changing their attitude uh, in in uh, Syria, and this is not something we can uh, live with. Uh, so the government is doing what it can do. Mm -hmm. and I think that's the right policy. Okay, we've got a couple questions here. Um, can you see any biblical parallels or miracles that the God of Israel is doing in these times in the work you do? Have you seen the, the providence of God, the hand of God? I see it every day. And, and I can tell you that for 30 years of service, every day in, in combat here in Israel, in the field, you see miracles. Hmm. It's, it's amazing. I mean, you get used to it. It's so daily that... Now you forget that it's actually a miracle. <laughs> um, I think that just really looking at a country that uh, is surrounded with so many enemies, we had so many wars in operation. Uh, which country in the world is being shot by rockets on Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, you know, just a few months ago? Uh, any other country in the world, in a, in a reality like Israel, would probably but would be one of the most poorest torn uh, mm -hmm. countries in the world. And Israel, every year is getting stronger and stronger. The economy is getting stronger. Israel's position uh, in the world is getting stronger uh, uh, all the time. And you, you really need to be blind to not see what a miracle this country is. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. The more they pressure us, the more we 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 flourish and 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 get uh, get stronger all the time. Yeah, I I agree. I, it's amazing to see uh, that the Israel's on this upward trajectory in so many ways. If there's global economic downturns, if you have rocket wars, terror campaigns, suicide bombers marching in your streets, somehow. You always dust yourself off and keep going upwards. And it really is, you have to say, the hand of God. Over the, I'll over give you an example to be more specific. I was in the headquarters in Tel Aviv when uh, missiles were shot from, uh, from Gaza towards Tel Aviv. Um, and uh, of course, when they shot, shot these rockets, immediately Iron Dome was uh, operated. And they shot at these rockets and they managed to destroy uh, several and two rockets continued straight to the most 
the central trade in Tel Aviv to Israeli buildings. Mm. Straight to the Israeli buildings. They shot uh, again with Iron Dome at these rockets and they missed again. And, and, and everybody was shocked. They said, God, these rockets are going to destroy Israeli. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. And then a second later, a huge wind came from east to west and threw these uh, rockets into the sea. Oh my goodness. The soldiers in the war room started to cry. They knew they witnessed a miracle. And this is one of many, I can tell you many stories there, <laughs> but of uh, so many miracles. Wow. I hadn't heard that one. That's amazing. We have a question uh, with the huge surge of Aliyah. Will, uh, Israel, will Israel allow some of these Ukrainian Russian newcomers settle in Judea Samaria? Are they going to become settlers? I think they want to populate the Negev and the Galilee because they the the Jewish era balance is so close there. They want Jews yeah, living. So I, I think that uh, I'm sure that uh, many will also go arrive to Judea and Samaria. But yes, we want to populate the Negev, the Galil, all the open areas uh, mm -hmm. we have, areas that uh, are heavily populated by Arabs. Um, so for us, it's a huge blessing. And, and, and I think that, you know, looking at it really from a spiritual point of view, when you look mm -hmm. at the huge anti-Semitism in the world, which is growing more and more and more, this is a sign for the Jewish people, which says something very simple. Take your things and come to Israel. Mm -hmm. You're not going to live for long in the diaspora. It's time to come back home. Mm -hmm. Here's an excellent question from Justin Daly. It says, Ukraine is winning the, the media war, the, the war for hearts and minds around the world. What can Israel learn from this, especially regarding uh, you know, the, the whole struggle over Judea, Samaria, and uh, the Golan Heights? Um, I'm not sure it's similar. I think um, the way we are treated is very, very different. Yeah. Uh, from Ukraine. And also talking about Ukraine, I'm afraid that maybe in a week or two or three or in a month, the media will get tired of this war. Mm. And we start dealing with something else and the Russians will continue doing what they want to do. Mm. Um, so I'm not that impressed by all this uh, uh, support. Uh, I think it might uh, change uh, later on when people will start getting bored and look for the next uh, news. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's already what they call sanctions fatigue among some Western leaders. They don't want to put more sanctions already. No, it's affecting also the West. I mean, when you know yeah. when the prices of oil are going up in in the U.S. and the gallon will reach six dollars. And I think also the society will say, that's it. Yeah. We're not going to pay the price uh, for some distant country in Europe. Mm -hmm. We've seen it some here in Israel with some of the recent rocket wars that everyone has cameras on their phones and does videos and posts them. Uh, but this, this war, uh, whether it's TikTok or Telegram or Twitter, it's just being uh, played out. Uh, you know, that's the, the sources for the real news, not, not the, the big news sites like CNN and BBC. It's quite interesting. Israel needs to learn that. Okay, it looks like uh, he's frozen right now. Are you still with us, General Bibi? Okay, if uh, if he comes back, I know he had uh, another appointment soon after this, so he was going to have to leave. But uh, uh, wow, what what insights, what uh, information that that we got from him? I know uh, some of the comments people are putting here on uh, the on the webinar channel. Uh, really enjoying it. I, I learned a lot, and uh, 
Uh, I'm glad he's uh, involved in the whole conversation of Israel's security needs and really making a difference. Uh, he said he's from this new generation of uh, Israeli leaders that didn't fight the Six Day War, Yom Kippur War. They fought the urban, urban warfare of uh, Operation Defensive Shield during the Second Intifada. They fought these rocket wars. And, and these are all attempts to really get at Israel's heartland and, and really before you're gonna have peace, you've got to secure even Israeli cities and, and uh, the very center of the country, even uh, the airport getting out, everything, all the highways, everything's vulnerable. And uh, I think that's a, a good discussion for this nation to, to be pursuing uh, how to secure its future. But he also seems to be a man of, of faith and believing and trusting God. And you do what you can, but you trust God. And that was very interesting to hear from him. Okay, we're going to start wrapping it up. I just want to uh, uh, remind everyone that we've been uh, really active in the urgent Ukrainian aliyah, all for the whole process of getting Jews, extracting them out of Ukraine, helping them get out across the border to safer areas in Poland, Romania. We're in get, involved in all that, flying them here to Israel, and then the absorption phase, helping them get settled. We've already helped over 500 Ukrainian Jews make Aliyah in the last three weeks or so through the Jewish agency. We're helping fund that whole effort, uh, but we also have some of our own projects uh, and, and efforts, uh, emergency efforts underway. One, we're sponsoring a team in Ukraine, several drivers and others helping. They're in special, they're, they're using uh, special vans and ambulances for disabled people. And we're going in to some of the worst hit areas, cities like Mariupol and uh, Kharkov, way in the east of Ukraine and picking up Holocaust survivors and bringing them all the way across the country over the western border into uh, uh, Poland, into Romania, and helping them make Aliyah to Israel. Some of the, most of these people are 80, 90 years old. You have to have family members go into the home while there's shelling going on and talk these people sometimes into leaving a home where they've lived for 80 years. And one lady we picked up in Kiev last week, she was born in the house, something like 85 years ago, born in the house where she lived. It wasn't easy for her, her to live, but she's uh, on her way to Israel now. Even today, uh, this is Thursday, uh, we're helping pick up uh, seven Holocaust survivors in Kiev. They're scattered around the city. We're having to go around, find them, put them in vans with some of their family members. And uh, we're gonna uh, have someone accompany them all the way to Warsaw and then uh, make sure we know what flight they're on so we can come greet them when, when they arrive here at Ben Gurion Airport. And we really would appreciate your help on this. We've got a video now that will show you, but you can help us uh, uh, fund all these efforts at give.icej.org slash Ukrainian Aliyah. So I'll ask um, our uh, web team, our technical team to play this video now of our, our special effort to help Holocaust survivors get uh, to safety and then to Israel. And uh, we'll end on that. Thank you for joining us. Join us next week for the global prayer gathering at four o'clock next Wednesday. And then we'll have a, be back with our ICEJ weekly webinar next Thursday, 4 p.m. as well. Join us then. Thank you for being with us. God bless you from Jerusalem. We are especially concerned for Holocaust survivors in Ukraine, who have already seen enough horrors and wars in their lives. Right now, the ICJ is working with an Israeli partner on the ground in Ukraine to locate and extract Holocaust survivors and then bring them safely home to Israel. 
we have a list of 75 Holocaust survivors scattered around the country. One by one, they are being picked up in vans and brought to safer areas. Many must decide if family members will also come. Within a few days, we hope to have them safely in Israel. The survivors are very grateful for our help. Огромное спасибо Георгию Гулину за то, что мы выбрались из этого пекла, и мы чувствуем себя в безопасности. Большое вам спасибо всем. And Israeli officials also appreciate the special effort to rescue Holocaust survivors from the war in Ukraine. I want to thank all of our friends from the Christian Embassy for your support, for your prayers, for your donations, helping us bringing more Jews from Ukraine to Israel. It is a blessing. God bless you. Please join us in rescuing Holocaust survivors and other Jews from the clutches of this brutal war in Ukraine. The need to help them reach Israel has never been greater. Donate today at give.icj.org forward slash Ukrainian Aliyah. Thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next Thursday at 4 p.m. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on our social media pages for more exclusive ICJ content.